For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 23, which I entitled Lessons on Prayer. As we read through the narrative, it's not real apparent that this is talking about prayer, but as we kind of comb back through the narrative, I think that the lessons on prayer will make themselves evident. Let's start in uh, verse 1. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed by the sword. This shouldn't be mistaken with James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the New Testament book, James. This was James Zebedee, who was, brother, who was the brother of John the Apostle. Usually the Gospels feature him, John, and Peter together as sort of the top three guys that Jesus worked with. So we're told that Agrippa executed James. And when Herod saw how much it pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. So a little bit of background here. This guy, Herod Agrippa, we know a little bit about him from history. I don't know if you have uh, read much ancient history or if you're familiar with the New Testament. There's like four different Herods. So it's really confusing to try to figure out which Herod the New Testament's talking about. This guy, Agrippa, as he's known, was Herod the Great's grandson. The guy who, remember, killed all the firstborn kids in the Gospels when Jesus was born. So this guy was his grandson, and he actually grew up in Rome, not in Judea. And he grew up in the customs of the Romans. He was sort of regarded in history as like this playboy. He was a womanizer. He partied a lot. And that actually got him into a lot of trouble. He ran into so much debt from partying and wasting all of his money that his creditors actually chased him out of the country and had to flee to another part of the country in order to escape. And eventually his uncle bailed him out and he returned back to Rome, but then he shot off his mouth to Emperor Tiberius and Tiberius actually threw him in jail for a number of years until finally he died. In which case Caligula, the new emperor, decided to release him from prison and then appointed him as tetrarch or king of the area of Judea. And so that's how he appears here in Acts chapter 12. Now, even though this dude was debauched, he was a fool, he ran his mouth, he was actually, he showed himself to be an able statesman and diplomat. Whenever he was in Jerusalem, we're told from Josephus that he practiced the Jewish rituals and customs, so he blended in. But when he was in Rome, he acted like a cosmopolitan Roman. So Agrippa knew how to play the people of Israel, and he was very popular. He essentially decided to side with the majority and ruthlessly oppressed the minority groups in Israel. That's the reason why he attacked the Christian believers here. So we're told that this took place during the Passover celebration, and he imprisoned Peter placing him under a guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for a public trial after the Passover, but while Peter was in prison. 
So he imprisoned Peter, and this took place during the Passover celebration, or as some translations put it, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This took place for about seven or eight days, and based on Jewish tradition, you were not allowed to have a public trial or sentencing during this time period. So Herod decided that he was going to keep Peter in prison until that time expired, and then he would sentence him. Presumably, he would put him to death just like he did James. So you can imagine this community of believers as they see Peter, one of their top guys, getting snatched up and thrown into prison, that they probably felt like this was a hopeless situation, that Peter would meet the same fate as James. And so you wonder, what would this small, hopeless community do in a situation like this? We're told in verse 5, the church prayed very earnestly for him. And the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers, and others stood guard at the prison gate. Kind of overkill for a guy like this, that they had squadrons of, of soldiers watching him, and they actually chained him, fastened him to two soldiers. Now, it's interesting that as all of this is going on, you know, this, this uh, verse uh, 6 sort of fast forwards us seven days into, you know, the night right before Peter stands trial before Herod, and we're told that he's fast asleep. Now, try to put yourself in Peter's shoes. You're, you're, you're awaiting trial for your death, whether you're going to live or die. That, for me, probably would be a sleepless night. And yet, you know, Peter, he's fast asleep. It's probably because he trusts that God would make his, uh, would execute his will uh, whether he lived or died. And so he had immense trust in God. We're told suddenly there was a bright light that flashed into the, sh- into the cell and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awake him and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. It's likely that this, this flash bang basically took out the soldiers. They were probably stunned and fell to the ground. And the angel essentially grabs Peter by the hand and leads him out. The angel told him, get dressed, put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize that it was actually happening. So Peter's like half awake and he's wandering through the streets with his angel. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for all of them by itself. And so they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Finally, Peter came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent an angel to save me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. So at that point, he comes to his senses, realizes he's in the middle of the streets of Jerusalem, and that he has escaped death. Now, all of us have had kind of an experience like this, maybe not a vision, but, you know, where you sort of have, like, you think you're dreaming, but then there's, like, some sort of reality to it. I remember talking to a buddy who said that, you know, he was sleeping, and during his dream, it was a super bizarre dream where some random stranger walked up to him lifted up his shirt and started licking his nipple. (laughs) And um, at that very moment, he awoke and he saw that uh, 
The kitten he just purchased was perched on his chest, <laughs> licking his nipple. So it must have been something like that. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. This guy, John Mark, was the guy who eventually authored the book or the gospel of Mark. Apparently, he was relatives with Peter. The believers were gathered for prayer on his behalf. He knocked at the door at the gate, and the servant girl named Rhoda came and opened it. When she recognized that it was Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. Meanwhile, he's standing there knocking. You're out of of your mind, they said. And when she insisted, they decided it must be an angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. I'm sure, you know, Peter was standing there like, uh, about time. And, you know, Rhoda's like, oh, sorry. And I kind of lost it there. Well, he motioned for them to quiet down. And he told them how the Lord had let them out of prison. Remember, this was in the middle of the night. So his appearance probably caused a great commotion. He wanted to make sure that none of the neighbors would wake up and, and alert the authorities. And he says, tell James and the other brothers what happened. And he went to another place. So he gives them sort of a breathless account of what happened and then escaped, probably because he knew that the Roman soldiers were prowling through the streets of Jerusalem trying to find him in order to execute him. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened. And when Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him, they couldn't find him. Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced him to death. And afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while where he would vacation. So in the ancient world, whenever you would lose your your prisoners, those who were under your guard, that meant that you would have to lose your life. So these guys got executed. So there you have the story of James and Peter. Now, I think that there are a few lessons on prayer that we can gather from this as we sort of make our way back and try to glean some of these principles. I think the first principle that kind of jumps out at us would be that God doesn't promise to answer every prayer request. You know, in Acts 12, verse 5, we're told, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, they prayed for Peter, but at the same time, they, earlier in this account, we're told that they were praying for James. I'm certain that they were praying for James. And yet, he ended up losing his life. Or think about when earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was arrested. I'm certain that the believers got together and started praying on his behalf as soon as they found out that the authorities had seized him. And yet... He still lost his life. And so the question is, if God was capable of saving those guys, why why did he allow them to die while instead he decided to free Peter? I think really there are a number of reasons for unanswered prayers. I think the first would be unbelief, that we take a stance where we refuse to take steps of faith, or we come to God with an attitude where we're unwilling to take action even if he answers our prayers. We read this passage last week, 
James 1, verse 5 through 8, where James says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like the wave of a sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all that he does. This term double-minded doesn't refer to somebody who simply doubts. It describes somebody who takes a posture of unbelief where they've decided in advance, no matter what God says, in answer to this prayer, I'm not going to listen, in which case God will not answer that prayer. Remember, we used that, uh, I gave that story about the guy who came to me and asked about this uh, big purchase he was going to make, but after the conversation, I found out that he already had purchased it. And I was furious about that. I was just like, why would I waste my time if I knew in advance that you already made this purchase? God doesn't have those limitations. He knows our hearts in a way that human beings do not. And so if we come to him with an unwillingness to listen to whatever wisdom he wants to impart to us, or if we have an attitude where we tell God, you know what? I refuse to take any steps of faith in this area, and yet we pray about it, we can anticipate that he's not going to answer our prayers when we take that, that, uh, that stance. Also, we need to consider that unbelief isn't really the same as doubt. I sort of mentioned this, but unbelief describes an unwillingness, an uh, absolute refusal to listen to God in a specific area. Whereas doubt, I think, describes maybe questions that we have about the Bible. And yet, when we get an answer, we're willing to listen and give God the benefit of the doubt. Or maybe we're praying about a situation that we feel uncertain about, we feel confused about, we're not certain how God's going to work in this situation, and we have doubts. But that's different than unbelief, where unbelief describes a refusal to see how God's working in a situation. God says that it's okay to, to have doubts. Those naturally enter into our minds, and we need to work through those things. But having a doubt isn't the same as having a hard heart, which really describes unbelief. Also, another reason for unanswered prayers would be that we're not asking or that we're asking with wrong motives. A few chapters later in the same book, James says this in chapter 4. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So a couple things that he mentions here, first of all, that we just simply don't ask. And you might be wondering yourself, would it, is it possible that God would withhold an answer to prayer or withhold blessing because we simply didn't ask? Well, I think this passage clearly states that the answer is yes. There are some cases where God will withhold blessing. And the reason that God insists that we ask before giving us blessing, that he intended to give us, is because he knows that if he just simply gave us the things that we needed or the things that we, at, we wanted, 
without waiting for us to turn to him, we probably would never run to him. And so God will oftentimes use this feeling of our need rising in our lives to draw us closer to him. And so sometimes he'll wait, he'll hold out for us to ask. Another thing he points to is that we ask with wrong motives. You know, we're asking for something that could potentially be harmful to us. You know, God will never answer a prayer that feeds into our selfishness or our self-centeredness. That runs contrary to his will. God aims to try to develop us into more self-sacrificial, more serving people. And so if we ask God, please God, make me ultra rich, make me more comfortable, you can anticipate that you're going to hear a dial tone on the other, on the other end of the line. He's just not going to answer that because it's not good for us. Also, God won't answer prayers because we fail to pray according to his will. Think about John chapter 14, verse 13. You have these statements in the Bible that give us promises that God will answer our prayers without a doubt. Jesus says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Whatever you ask. Now that seems like Jesus is sort of writing us a blank check and says, whatever, whatever you want, you can have it. You know, and some teachers of the Bible, for example, you have these faith healers who go around teaching that, you know, God wills that you are healed of any sort of disease or ailment you have in your life, and you simply need to exert enough faith. And so when you pray that God would, would heal you of this sickness and you find out that you're, you're still struggling or ailing with that disease, then that probably means that you have not exerted enough faith. You know, that line of thinking which doesn't just, you know, fall within the confines of people who are into faith healers, but really, I think, many believers who feel like, you know, God's not answering my prayer, so that probably means that he's angry at me. Or maybe I'm not praying with enough earnestness. Maybe that's what God wants. He wants more faith from me. But the key to look at here is that Jesus gives two very important conditions to answering our prayers. First of all, that we ask in his name. Now, this doesn't mean that we just punctuate the end of our prayer with, in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. That doesn't mean that God's gonna be like, okay, I'm gonna wave my magic wand over that. Yeah, you're gonna get that. That's not what he's talking about. You know, he's describing us praying according to his will. That's what he means when we pray in his name. You know, to use an analogy to help us kind of understand this better, you know, imagine if you owned a small business and you decided to send one of your employees to go and, and make some purchases for your business. In a sense, they are acting in your name, right, when they make these purchases. They're not allowed to just go and purchase things for their home or for their car, right? They are, they are acting on your behalf. And so likewise, when we pray according to God's will, we have assurance that he is going to come through. 
Secondly, he says that we should pray in a way that will bring God glory. You know, God is not going to answer a prayer that doesn't bring him some sort of glory. He certainly isn't going to answer our prayer if it brings, you know, us glory or if we try to, you know, puff up our ego or our pride. He's not going to answer those prayers. And so those are two very important qualifications, that we pray according to God's will. And then also there's a matter of timing. Sometimes it's that God is waiting for just the right time to answer our prayer. And that leads us to our next point, which is persistence in prayer. We see that in this story. In Acts 12, verse 4 through 7, we're told the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, that is Peter, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. So the night before Herod was going to bring him before trial and we can presume that the believers were probably praying earnestly, regularly, that God would free Peter from prison those seven days and yet God waited till the very last moment it seems like in order to free Peter, even though he knew all along that he was going to do that. So why would he wait that long? I think that it has to do with persistence in prayer, that God wants us to continue to come to him with our requests. Look at this passage in Luke 18, verse 1 through 5. Jesus tells this parable, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him and pleading, grant me justice against my adversary. So Jesus paints this judge in a pretty dark, pretty, uh, dark light. He says, this guy neither feared God nor cared about people. But there was this woman who kept pleading with him. And for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. You know, it's just like, look, I hate God, I hate people, I hate you, but the fact that you keep knocking at my door and bugging me, you know, I'm just going to finally give in, give you what you want, because I'm tired of listening to you. Now, we're not real familiar with this kind of argumentation today. It's not, this kind of argument isn't used very often, but this type of argument Jesus uses or employs what is called uh, a fortiori arguments. And it takes two things that are dissimilar, and the, the greater the dissimilarity, the stronger the argument. Essentially, what the a fortiori argument tries to do is, if this, how much more this thing over here? In other words, here's this judge who hates God, who hates people, hates this woman, and yet he finally grants her her request because she's just so naggy and demanding that finally he, he gives in to her. How much more will God, who loves us, who cares about us, who wants to show justice, how much more will he be willing to answer our prayers? That's the point of this. But it still points to the fact that even though God shows willingness to answer our prayers, he desires our persistence. That's the point of this parable. 
he highlights that this woman continued to come to the judge. And that's what God wants to see from us. Now, we should differentiate this from mindlessly repeating memorized prayers. You see this in a lot of world religions where people memorize these prayers. They don't really understand the content of it, but they rattle it off. And this combined with ritualism and, you know, sacred space, all of these things are an attempt to try to localize God. I think that human beings, since the dawn of human history, have tried to put God in a box. And so, really, mindlessly repeating memorized prayers to God is just another attempt to try to get God to do things for us. It's really a mechanistic approach to trying to get blessing from God, where we view him as sort of this cosmic pop machine where we, we you know, throw in our good works, our ritual, or our memorized prayer, and we expect that he's going to vend blessing and guidance in our lives. But Jesus confronts this. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he says, when you pray, don't go babbling on as other people of other religions do. They think their prayers are, answer, are answered merely by repeating the words again and again. But instead, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do I know that? And why do I know it in the King James Version? <laughs> it's really ironic that, you know, Christians have taken something that Jesus used as a pattern for how we should pray intelligently, how we should pray personally to God, and have turned it into exactly what he was critiquing, mindless repetition. And I was guilty of this. I mean, I, I memorized that prayer, and I have to say, I didn't understand what it meant at all. That's not what we're talking about here. You know, persistent prayer should take place in a relational context. You know, God doesn't, he wants us to relate to him as a person, not as a machine that we get pissed at whenever, you know, he swallows up our good works and doesn't give us the blessing that we think we deserve. Instead, God wants us to come to him as we would a friend. You know, when you, when you are struggling with something and you talk to your best friend, a lot of times, whatever you're struggling with, it's going to come up in conversation repeatedly. And that's exactly the way God wants us to view persistence in prayer, that we come to him with our struggles, with our anxieties, and that we persist in asking him to reveal uh, his wisdom or to, to um, answer our prayers. Also, it requires us taking a posture of faith. The mere fact that we would turn to God with our needs indicates that we have some ounce, uh, you know, an ounce of faith. You know, God wants us to come to him trusting that he's going to come through on some level. Also, it draws us closer to God. You know, a lot of times we like to project that we are self-sufficient, that we don't need anybody. And yet, the truth is, we're pretty helpless, and we know it. 
And God wants to show us that he wants to take care of us. He wants to meet our needs, that we don't have to try to do that on our own. And also, it strengthens our faith in God. Faith is sort of like a muscle. And when you put stress on a certain muscle, it it creates some pain. Just like waiting on God to answer your prayer can be painful. But, you know, when you think about putting stress on a muscle, eventually your muscle will grow and get stronger. And And likewise, when it comes to our faith, God will often put stress on our faith by causing us to wait in order to build it up. You know, you think about some of the biblical examples in the Old Testament. Abraham, for example, waited for like 20-something years before God answered his prayer. And as a result, Abraham's faith grew by leaps and bounds. And likewise, as God makes us wait for things that he intends to give us eventually, he wants to try to strengthen our faith. And a lot of times, he'll wait to the very last moment to answer our prayer just to kind of stun us and and really put, you know, the finishing touch on it. I was just recalling recently cases where, a case where God answered a prayer in our group, my home church, really at the 11th hour. Uh, This guy had been coming around to our group and he didn't really believe in God and was investigating Christianity. And over the course of months, the guy who brought him out would talk to him about spiritual things and he would clearly lay out what God wants for him in his life. And one of the things, though, was that this guy was enlisted for the military and he had a very short period of time before he would embark to go to basic training. And so the very last home church he went to the guy who brought him around was like, I'm just going to take a direct shot at him. And he just expressed how God loves him and wants to have a relationship with him. And then he left. Three days later, he gets a text message, says, man, I'm going to really miss you a lot. And by the way, I talked to Jesus and told him that I want him to forgive me for what I've done. You know, the amazing thing about that was that, you know, at our weekly prayer meeting, we would pray for this dude every single week for months. And God waited to the very last moment to answer that prayer, which was awesome. And that was definitely a faith-building moment for all of us. Also, we should engage in corporate prayer. Look at Acts 12, 12. When, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So they, were, they came together corporately to pray for Peter. And again, we see that Jesus teaches that this really should be the pattern for our spiritual community. In Matthew 18, verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, again, I tell you that if two or three of you agree and ask for anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come in my name, there I am with them. So there's something about two or three or more believers coming together and praying with one another on behalf of an individual or a situation, that God is there in a special way, that we can harness his power uh, in a way that we maybe can't individually when we get together. Now, I remember when I first started coming around here and I started hearing people like praying out loud together, 
that was like super freaky. I was like, oh, this is super weird. And then uh, somebody, like an older guy came up to me. He was like, maybe you should try to do that too. And I was just like, oh, man, I don't know about that. And I was afraid. And I was just like, why would I want to do that? I mean, I could just pray at home. And then this passage confronted me. Two or three gather in Jesus' name. He's with us in a special way. I think there are a number of benefits to praying together. I think, first of all, when you come together and pray with other believers, it's amazing to hear other people talk to God. I think prayer is probably one of the most intimate and personal things you can do. And to hear other people express their faith and talk to God, I think, gives us an insight into them and maybe a different way of looking at God. Uh, that maybe we wouldn't see just praying on our own. And so there are a lot of benefits to corporate prayer. Also, the quality of their faith was not really that important. That wasn't the most important thing about this. Acts 12, verse 13 through 16, we're told uh, that when Peter arrived at the door and Rhoda ran back to tell them that Peter was there, they told her, you're out of your mind. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel, or it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. You know, you would think that these guys, after praying for several days earnestly to God, when Peter showed up, they'd be like, about time you showed up. Where were you? I'm praying here, man. No, we're told that they were astonished. They didn't realize that God had answered their prayer and that the answer to their prayer was knocking at the door, waiting. You know, I think that God's not so much concerned with the amount of our faith. He's concerned more with the object of our faith. Again, if you turn back to one of Jesus' parables, he tells his disciples that if you have even a mustard seed of faith, you can move mountains. You know, the mustard seed was proverbial for something really small. And he's saying that it doesn't take that much faith. The, the, the point isn't that we need to try to whip up faith and, and try to get the feeling in there, you know, where we're trying to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, like, oh, God, please listen. He doesn't need that from us. He can hear us perfectly fine. What's most important to him is that we direct our faith toward what's true that we entrust ourselves to him. And finally, that we should keep our eyes peeled for answered prayers. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. So it's important for us to, to keep track of answered prayers. You know, we go through all the trouble of persisting in prayer, but then if we don't ever notice that God answered our prayers, what's the point? A lot of times, God will answer our prayers in ways that we didn't even expect. And so it, does, it definitely requires a watchful attitude in order to see when God answer our, answers our prayers. You know, first of all, we need to recognize them. It's amazing. I've been, I've been uh, trying to do like a prayer list for a number of years now. The reason I even started doing it was because my mind sort of wanders. You know how that is when you're like trying to pray? You get real sleepy or some foreign thought will enter into your mind like, man, I really need to wash 
my clothes right now. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, man, I forgot I had brushed my dog, you know? <laughs> and so all these crazy thoughts will come into your mind, distract you from what you're trying to do. And so I decided that I was going to put together a prayer list that I would do every day. And, you know, it's not something that takes a long time. It takes me like five minutes to just pray through individuals that God's put in my life, groups that I oversee, and, you know, pray for some personal stuff as well. I really don't look back on it very much, but today I decided, you know, I'm going to go check out something that I read or I prayed for a few years ago. And so I randomly opened up an entry from November 13th, 2010. And uh, I went through my list, and I just started highlighting all of the answered prayers. And I counted 13 answered prayers. Some of the most amazing that I highlighted were, uh, first of all, I remember praying that uh, God would raise up guys like uh, Chris Hardy and Brian Jones, who weren't even working for Xenos at the time, that you know, God would raise them up into powerful spiritual leaders one day. And, you know, now you look at them and they're having uh, an incredible impact in this church. Another thing that I prayed for, too, was that my wife's parents would uh, eventually become soft to uh, spiritual things. You know, just last week, uh, we, we got bad news that my wife's dad actually has stage three pancreatic cancer. You know... My wife has been pretty distraught, but we knew that this would be an opportunity for God to um, soften him and see his need for Christ. And so last week, we decided to draft a letter to him. She just expressed how much God loved uh, him and how much she loved him and how she hopes to be able to continue their relationship in eternity. The next day, we got an email from him that said, you know, I love you. Thank you for writing that letter, and I promise that I'm going to think about this. I was just thinking to myself, six and a half years praying for this dude, and finally God has answered uh, my prayers, and I'm certain many other people's prayers as well. And so we need to make sure to recognize when God answers our prayers. Also, we need to remember when God answers our prayers as well. Think about the incident there where the nation of Israel finally enters into the promised land. God says, as soon as, you, as your feet touch the water, the Jordan River is going to open up. And as they're walking through, God says, I want you to take some stones from the bed of the Jordan, and I want you to go and stack that up as a memorial signifying my faithfulness to you. And so it's important for us to regularly recall and thank God for the, the, the great things that he's done for us, all of the answered prayers. Otherwise, we're just going to default back to our, our whining and complaining and grumbling that we do so often in our lives. All right, let's, let's summarize here. I think, first of all, prayer represents personal communication with God. For some of us, that is just like a game changer. Because most of, most of the time we think of religion or we think of God and it's sort of like doing rituals. Or it's about just, you know, talking at God or saying these memorized things to him. 
But God wants you to see, he wants to ingrain it in your mind that what he wants with you is a personal relationship. He wants to communicate with you. Secondly, we should never try to put God into a headlock with our prayers, trying to force him to do something that is against his will. Even if we could, we would never want that to happen. That would be disastrous. And so we should never use prayer or attempt to use prayer as a way to try to compel God to do things for us. Instead, we need to learn how to pray according to his will. This is where studying the Bible and praying intersect, where they come together. As we study the Bible, we get a better understanding of what God's values are, what he cares about. And as we pray, we can then align what we're asking for with what we know God already wants. And that's what gives us assurance that when we pray according to his name or according to his will, that he will answer us. And finally, uh, or fourthly, people, very few people feel good about their prayer life, except for the Pharisees. So if you're sitting here thinking, oh man, you know, I feel like that's not a problem that I have. Guess who you're keeping company with? The villains of the Bible. You know, even though I feel like I've made some strides in my prayer life, that's definitely an area that I feel like I can continue to improve on. And uh, whenever I encounter something like this, a teaching like this, I always think to myself, I, I don't understand why I don't pray more. And finally, don't waste your time wringing your hands about how crappy you are at praying. Just come to God. That's what he wants. Sometimes we get so guilty, we feel so bad that, oh, I haven't, I haven't communicated with God or my prayer life is so crappy. And we just get caught up in that. But that's not what God wants from you. He just wants you to come to him. And I think that's particularly important for those of us who don't know God in the first place. The Bible teaches that God desperately wants to know you and has gone to great lengths to redeem you in your life by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. And when you turn to him and receive his forgiveness, you can have a relationship with God. You can start to communicate with him personally. Well, there is another part to the story. Like all good stories, this one ends with a pretty satisfying kill. <laughs> Acts 12, verse 21. This is uh, friction that uh, Agrippa has with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We're told when the day arrived to make peace with, the, with Tyre and Sidon, Herod put on his royal robe, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a God, not a man. And instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he, he was consumed with worms and died. Yeah. <laughs> Herod got his. Now, I think one of the interesting things about this is that we see corroboration of this story from extra-biblical sources. Josephus, the first-century ancient historian, not a Christian, actually verifies this story. In his account, he actually adds a few details that Luke left out. Namely, that when Herod 
went into the amphitheater that he was wearing this incredible silver robe or garment. And that with this, when the sun struck it, people were in awe of, um, of his robe and, and uh, started to worship him as God. And that when he did not rebuke the people for worshiping him as God, he felt this sudden pain in his stomach and then died several days later. Documented there in Antiquities uh, book 19, chapter 343. And so this isn't just some sort of made-up story. This actually happened. Uh, and it's interesting, some commentators actually believe, they, they think they've identified that the, he probably had roundworms that you'll have uh, or people will come down with. And ha- you know, these roundworms will sometimes bunch up in parts of your intestines and will create uh, blockages. And also, sometimes you'll end up uh, throwing, throwing up copious amounts of worms before you eventually die. And so, it wasn't pretty how Herod died. Yeah, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to talk to you. Thanks that you tell us that we can boldly enter into your presence and speak to you without any sort of shame or guilt because of what you've done through, the, through uh, Jesus on the cross. And um, yeah, Lord, I pray that uh, we would uh, grow in this area. I know that for me, I'm not satisfied. Uh, like I mentioned, it's easy for me to get caught in these ruts of uh, just sort of going through the motions and uh, viewing my time with you as sort of a checklist of things that I need to do. I pray that um, you would help remind me that uh, anytime I engage in prayer, that this is in a personal interaction with you and that I'm relating to the God of the universe. And um, we thank you that, um, you know, you, um, you are very gracious with us even when we don't communicate with you as often as we should. And I uh, pray that you would grow us in this area. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.